my name is Grace, and I'm a third year, and I'll be reading the passage for us tonight. Um, we're continuing in Matthew 5. I'll be reading verses 1 and 2 and 13 through 16. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I'm really excited for tonight uh, because of what Grace just read and getting to talk about the kingdom's influence in this dark world. There's three things we'll kind of talk about, three aspects of that. The first is the reality of the Christian's influence. The reality of the Christian's influence. The second is the ingredients of that influence. Uh, where does it come from? What's it made of? And the last are the killers of a Christian's influence in the world. Grace read the passage. Let's pray and ask Jesus to open us up to him and open up this passage uh, to us. Jesus, we pray that you would bring the influence of your kingdom and you, the king, on our lives tonight. Would you rub off on us? Would you be contagious to us tonight? Um, we, what we're going to talk about, what you say in this passage is pretty astounding, and I really struggle to believe it, and ministry is my full-time job. And so I'm very aware, Lord, that for those who aren't pastors for a living but students, it can be even more difficult to believe you when you say this stuff to us. So help us believe you and give us imaginations tonight, creativity, to follow you into the paths forward you're leading us in, to influence and love and serve this city and this campus. We pray this for your sake and for ours. Amen. So we've spent the past couple of weeks talking about the character of people's lives that have been colonized by heaven. That was N.T. Wright's way of describing uh, what the kingdom of heaven is. It's heaven colonizing earth and the life of heaven invading the here and the now in real people. Uh, it, heaven shows up in God's people long before God's people ever show up in heaven. His life begins to be unleashed in the here and the now through our lives into the world. And immediately after what Jesus did last week, if you have an old school Bible or an app, you can flip up and see what we've been talking about the past couple of weeks is the character of his people. He's describing kind of the interior attitudes, the attitude of heart of people who really know him, who are walking with him, who are his disciples. And he told them, he said, uh, right after he describes their character, he says, you, y'all, are the salt of the earth, and y'all are the light of the world. And remember, who's the y'all? The y'all is his disciples. Who are his disciples? His disciples are the people he was talking about just before this, the spiritually poor, the gentle, the humble, 
the people who are very aware of the gap between where they are and where they want to be, of how they need to mature and how they want to grow. They're very hungry for God. They're the single-minded. They're peacemakers. They're the people who the world has put on full blast for being and walking with Jesus. And they're being persecuted for that. Jesus says to his disciples, these little weaklings that he described last week that we've been talking about, he says, you, y'all, are the real influencers in the world. He did not say his true disciples are the real influencers in the weird Christian subculture in Athens. He did not say you will make a huge and lasting impact in the church or in spiritual or religious spaces. He said to his people, you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. It's in the dark and decaying world the culture, the city, the country, that's where God's going to leave a mark through you and through me. And so Jesus is saying, in a sense, you're in the big leagues. Jesus is saying, in a sense, you are in the big leagues. This is one of those moments where you know, Jesus, like if you imagine him just grabbing you by the shoulders and looking intently at you, um, he says this stuff to us, and we go like, we kind of like look behind us, and we're like, who's he talking to? Like, wait, are there like some celebrity influencers behind me, or ivory tower, like seminary professors or theologians, or like people are just like the 40 for under 40, like just UJ alum who have crushed it in life, who's he talking to? He can't be talking to people like us. He can't be talking to people like he just described in the Beatitudes. Because if you resonated with the week's past, you might be thinking, well, I'm JV. If people really knew me, I'd be the last pick on Team Jesus. I'd be the one standing there after both teams were there. And it'd just be shame because nobody wants me. And a lot of us know quite well we walk with a limp. We can't get through a day, much less a week, without falling on, leaning on Jesus. You might feel like, I'm the guy who's racked by lust, or I'm the girl who's racked by lust, or I question all the time what my purpose in life is. I find it really hard to believe that I've ever made a difference any place I've ever been. And friends, I'm talking to you. Now I'm you singular, not you plural. You. This is why you struggle to think Jesus is talking to somebody behind you, and, and we're doing the whole, who, me? And Jesus, right now, through these words, is getting eye contact with you, and he's saying, I'm talking to you. You are the light of the world. Do you have trouble believing that? Have you just heard it as like a cliche? It's, you know, it's a pretty familiar phrase we know from Scripture, but uh, have you just always heard it in the plural and you're like, okay, I get it. Christians are the light of the world. They're the salt of the earth. Jesus is talking to you. This is a corporate moment of him and his people, but it's a very personal moment between him and you. And he's saying, you are going to be one of the people through whom God's kingdom comes in the here and the now. You, Christian, if you are one, if you're walking with Jesus, you are going to be one of those people 
through whom God does his will and brings his kingdom here in Athens as it is in heaven. You weak little disciples of mine, Jesus says, you are God's designated influencers. You are actually going to be the one that he has always planned to use to illuminate your sorority sister's walk to Jesus, or better yet, his walk to her. You're that person. That's God's plan. And you're like, do you have a plan B? Because that doesn't sound like a sturdy plan A. No, you're the only plan. Because Jesus looks at you and says, you're the light of the world, you're the salt of the earth. I love what uh, David Jackman writes. He's He's an author and he says, low profile anonymity will not be an option for us. Christians who are authentic disciples will always be like a city on a hill having high visibility. Jesus is saying, you know me, my grace has taken hold in your life, heaven is colonizing your life, you're gonna be lit up like the 4th of July. You might not think it, but people around you are gonna notice. There's a reality to the Christian's influence in the world that most Christians are not aware of or awake to. But God is insistent on telling us this. When God's grace reigns over you as king, the people and the things around you will begin to change because of your influence. Often for the better, not always for the better, we'll talk about that in a minute, but often for the better. If I um, lit a stick of dynamite and threw it in the lobby back there, of course when we're all up here, we're out of the building, whatever, um, and it blows up, would you expect it to alter its surroundings when it blew up? Of course, because the nature of dynamite is explosive. The nature of dynamite is to alter its surroundings. The nature of a Christian who is alive in Jesus is to alter her surroundings. It's the first expectation. It's the assumption, not the exception, not the, well, she's a really good Christian. It's the bare minimum assumption Just like the bare minimum assumption, all dynamite is going to mess up its surroundings. Jesus isn't saying, maybe, maybe, maybe if you do all this stuff, you'll have an influence on your little pockets of the world where I have put you, where I have embedded you. He's saying, this is who you are. This is the impact that will come out of that. And there's no maybe about it. So let's pause just at this initial place because we're really just kind of lingering on this first point of like the reality of the Christian's influence in his or her niche of the world, your corner of the world. Let me ask you this before we move any further. What changes in your life this week if you believe this? What changes in 20 minutes when RUF is over and the last song ends and you have the decision, run to my car, or run to my friend group, or run to the familiar face, or talk to somebody else. Like, what changes about that scenario if you're actually believing what I'm, sorry, not me, if you're listening to Jesus right now? And he has just said, I will use you now. What changes? You can't hear this and believe it, and nothing change. You can reject it. You can just allow yourself, in a moment of laziness, to just let this pass you right over. 
That would be unbelief. That would be rejecting the voice of Jesus. That would be refusing to listen to him. You can do that. But I said, if you listen to this, what's going to change? When you know that Jesus is going, he intends to bear fruit through your little life, even if, even when, even as the Beatitudes describe that life. Weakness and poverty and mourning and hungering and being gentle and lowly and meek and humble. I can tell you this. I was, I, it was only the past few years where I actually began to recognize that I had agency. You know what the word agency means? Agency means like the ability to do something. And it's sad. I don't know like when this occurred to y'all, probably at an earlier age than me, uh, Nathan and Nicole, but like I was, I mean, probably like my mid-30s when I realized I can actually make a difference. And it came from like five or six years in a row of very gracious generous people, like students coming up and saying, that conversation really impacted me. And I just never believed that. I never expected it. I was always discouraged. And I finally was like, Ben, get over yourself. These people are coming and saying this mattered to them. Maybe it did. It's not about me. Maybe it did. And I began to realize, what if I like leveraged that? What if I showed up to a conversation believing that God intends to use the words I speak right now? I lean into that. And I pray more. And I, and I go to some places in the conversation I would not have gone to otherwise because I am expecting him to show up and work. I'm not like aimlessly wandering around wondering if he might pretty please, maybe one day might want to work, but I'm expecting him to because Jesus said, Ben, you're salt in this conversation. You're light, and the other person is that to me. What would change in your life if you believe the words I'm saying to you right now? There's a saying it's common sense. I don't even, it's not one of those things you attribute to a person because it's just common sense, but it's like, it goes like this. You tend to get where you're aiming to go. You tended to arrive at this building tonight because you were aiming to be here. A few weeks ago, I got on a, a flight that said Philadelphia, and I landed in Philadelphia, and I was not at all surprised because I intended to get there. I had aimed myself to get there. What if you're aiming nowhere? You're going nowhere. We're getting nowhere. We're aimless. If you believed what Jesus tells you here and you let these words land inside of your head, your heart, your ears, do you imagine one change might be you would want to aim yourself and say, man, he's given me some tremendous ammunition, which we'll talk about in a minute, but like, he's say, like he, he means this. There's nobody behind me. It's, it's me that he's saying this to. Would it make you want to think about where you want to go with your friend group? Would it make you a little more strategic with your intramural team instead of just wanting to win the trophy? You treat it as the best, easiest place in the world to invite your hallmate to. She'll never come here, but she'll play softball with you and get to know your friends. Or do you just go on and just kind of like everything's just an inch deep? No, nothing has any greater meaning. Nothing has any strategic impact because you're not anticipating God to use a single thing you ever do. This is really challenging stuff, y'all, right? I don't think this way. I need Jesus to get up in my business and say, Ben, are you listening? Are you listening? And I think you need that too. Jesus is not skeptical about your influential potential. He's not doubting it. You might be, I might be, he ain't. He just isn't. 
He's not wringing his hands over whether he's going to be able to make an impact through your life. He has told you, you belong to him. You belong to me. Of course I'm going to, of course I'm going to make an impact through you. Of course I'm going to use you. But uh, perhaps I should add this. If you're going to aim yourself to capitalize on your, your influential potential, the, the potential to have influence, to make an impact, to leave a mark, if you're going to capitalize on that, you're going to need to know the ingredients of influence, right? I mean, so far, maybe you could classify this as pep talk. Jesus with you in the locker room saying, hey, buckle up. Welcome to the big leagues. We're going out on the field together. But now you're like, okay, I'll go with you, but like, I still don't know how to throw a ball or catch a ball, or run a play. So he's like, okay, we can go there. We can, we, can, we can do some scrimmage. Let's get there. What are the ingredients? I love how practical and simple Jesus is here. And I bet the uneducated or the poor in his midst when he was teaching this loved him for this. This isn't high-minded like, let me put on my philosophy cap. This is, he's like, hey, you ever, you ever had salt? Do you know what light is? Jesus says, you're the light and you're salt. Why did he reach for those two metaphors, though? Why did he say, like, you're the honey of the world, or the sugar of the world, you're sweet? You make, you make things sweeter wherever you are. Why didn't he say, you're the water of the world? You quench people's thirst. He could have chosen a ton of different stuff. He didn't. What he said is, you're the salt of the earth, and you're the light of the world. Let's take a little dip into what, the, what he means by these little metaphors. Salt is, as you know, only useful when it comes into contact with something that's different than it. Um, maybe there's just me and Hannah left in this group. There might be a couple others who at, uh, swam in the Dead Sea when we went to Israel a couple years ago. Uh, it's just salt. And the, the, the sea floor of the Dead Sea is like this thick and crusty salt. And there's no life anywhere around it, and it's all this slimy mud all the way around it, like nothing. Salt on salt on salt on salt is worthless, and it has no impact. Salt is valuable because when it comes into something different than itself, it does two things. It enhances or draws out the flavor of it, or it preserves it. Jesus didn't call you the salt of the church. Hear me. Jesus didn't call you the salt of RUF. He didn't call you the light of the Christian campus ministry community in Athens, Georgia. He said, you're the light of the campus. He said, you're the salt of the sorority. You see the difference? Jesus is doing something very different than what we're often doing. We're often building our, um, I don't know, like our, our pseudo fraternities or sororities, like, like just find some friends and do my thing and have my thing. Jesus is like, I'm fine with that. But are you on mission with those friends? Are you coming here to get wound up and spun back out to the campus that he loves? Or to the UNG that he loves, or the Athens Tech that he loves, or the Augusta Nursing that he loves, or the Publix that he loves, or the Pineview that he loves, or the Brumby that he loves, or the Honors College that he loves, or the lab cohort that he loves? You're the salt of those places. You're the light of those places. And there's only use and helpfulness when we're around things that are different than us in that regard. Put salt on a bland piece of meat, and it's amazing. Put salt on, I mean, in the cultures that don't have refrigerators, um, that's how they preserve stuff, covered in salt. 
and it killed the germs and it prevented decay or rotting of the meat. And people could keep that in a little bag with salt for years and it would keep. Because the salt, I think through osmosis or something like penetrated and preserved. That's what salt does, it penetrates and it preserves. And that was the major use of salt in Jesus' day, unlike ours. I mean, they used it for flavor too, but that was the main thing that it was used for. And Jesus is appealing to both aspects of salt when he talks about that. And he's saying this, your presence in darkened, in dark, lifeless places will bring glimmers of his kingdom. It'll bring out flavor that was otherwise impossible to happen in that place. Here's an example. The way my fraternity brothers talked about God in my dinky little Bible study we did that was pretty pointless, like we just talked about ourselves all the time. We never even like really opened the Bible, but some, some Christians showed up one day and they knew Jesus. They walked with him. They loved him. And the way they talked about God, I had never heard anybody talk about God that way. The texture, how multidimensional he is, the personality with which they they talked to him like he was actually alive and actually real and actually relevant and actually holy and actually powerful and actually sovereign. And I'm like, who is this? The bland meat was there all along. And I was so bored and tuned out with Christianity and with God because of it. They showed up and the flavor was drawn out of something that I'd had in front of me the whole time. That's what Jesus is talking about. You finally taste again. You finally see God as brilliant creator again in the creation that he's made. And Jesus also means that you will be one who penetrates and preserves corrupt, decaying, dark places in this city, this year, and this campus. And you'll prevent further rot. So this is an example. Um, I was talking to Joe, and Joe said he was, he's new on the job with Downtown Academy. Some of y'all came in after this announcement, but... This church, Redeemer, uh, this is where I was a member when I was a student during my latter years and where we're a member now. But 20 years ago, this church, which was planted downtown for strategic reasons, looked across the street and uh, was, was holding in, in their hand these statistics. Athens is one of the poorest counties in the state. Uh, in, it's one of the poorest in the state, one of the poorest in the country. Has one of the lowest high school graduation rates. And they were looking as downtown was kind of wealth and money was being poured into right down there, student housing, high rises, all these nice restaurants. And Parkview and Paldo up the road were getting more and more lost in the dust, less and less resources going to these communities. Kids weren't graduating, families were crumbling apart. And there were some people at this church who actually believed that Jesus intended to use them to bring his kingdom through them in this city. And so what they did is they went across the street and they started to get to know people. And they went up to Paldo, which has been torn down since then, but up off Hawthorne. And they got to know those people. And they got to know the leaders in those communities who were already at work because they believed that Jesus actually intended to use them. And they partnered with those communities. And they started something 20 years ago called Downtown Sports, little football leagues, basketball leagues, cheerleading squads for the little boys and girls there who'd never had anybody pay attention to them. And they use that as an avenue to get to know those families and earn trust and credibility in that community and empower some of those people to be the coaches, to run the programs. And then they started an academy. And that's what Joe came up and said, they need help tutoring these kids now. 
and it's 10 or 15 years later, and this community is different because of this academy. And because somebody at this church actually believed Jesus when he said, you're salt. The decay of poverty, the decay of illiteracy, the decay of no high school graduation, no college, no career after that. I'm going to use you to bring my kingdom here. Some of y'all aren't involved in those things, but you wonder what would it look like for me to participate in that? Well, historically, it's the church that was the catalyst for the abolition movement in, in England. It was black Christians in this country who were the catalyst for the civil rights movement. It was Christians in the 1600s that planted Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Brown, UPenn, all of the Ivy Leagues, hospitals that you know by name, to serve illiterate populations, uneducated populations. They had a mentality that God is serious when he says he intends to use you to bring his kingdom and to build it in your day. We don't know most of their names today, but we know a lot about what they did. Some of you are serving in anonymity. Nobody gets up here and puts your picture up and says, look at this guy. Every week he shows up to freshman fellowship and leads this little group of freshmen to be salt in the decay of loneliness that is endemic here in Athens, in a university setting. Community group leaders, how many hours you pour in every week trying to be a little taste of home for people in this community and that community. You're trying, you're believing that God actually intends to work you. Faith Prez doing English as a second language classes for immigrants in Athens who can't get jobs because they can't speak English. Good Shepherd, where many of you go, doing normal talks, rotating around different bars in normal town to bring the entire community, not their church, the community, to talk about things like education and how to improve it in this city, to talk about things like the refugee crisis and how to be hospitable to those in our city who are here seeking refuge. Are you getting the point what it looks like when, when, a, when a Christian, when she, when he wakes up and realizes, oh no, He's looking at me, and he's dead serious. This is what happens. Some people might say, well, Ben, this isn't spiritual stuff. The gospel's about souls and hearts and, like, thoughts and stuff like that. Is Jesus just the king of spiritual stuff? Is Jesus just the king of the church? Or is he king and sovereign ruler over every square inch of reality, as every page of the Bible says he is? This isn't just societal, structural stuff. This is his stuff. He cares about it. I love, for that reason, what this British economist and politician, Sir Frederick Catherwood, said, to try and improve society is not worldliness, but love. To wash your hands of society is not love, but worldliness. To check out and say, we got a little thing in these four walls of RUF. Why, why would we ever pray for UGA? Why would we ever care to get to know people at International Coffee Hour? Why would I ever invite a friend tonight at the farm when I can just go and be with my friends I've already made? That's not the gospel. That is worldliness. That's paganism. And Jesus invites you. He invites me, who's prone to think this way. He says, hey, tomorrow's a new day. There's new mercy for you. Follow me. Follow me as I pursue this place. Well, we've talked about the salt. What about the light? Because, hear what I just I just said that is actually spiritual stuff. It's actually kingdom stuff. But 
What good is being lifted out of poverty if you're still enslaved to sin and addiction and death and condemnation for your sins? What good is having a college degree when you're still an addict or still a slave to shame? The world doesn't just need salt, the world needs light. And the world needs particularly the light of Jesus to illumine it. And this is where things get a little bit odd because Jesus says, you are the light of the world. We've been talking about it for 20 minutes. He says, you're the light of the world, which is the reverse of what he almost says almost every single other time. Every other time, he says, he's the light of the world. John 1, the light has come into the darkness and the darkness hasn't ever come. And he's talking about Jesus. Why does he now flip it and say, actually, you're the light of the world? We could say in a sense that the moon is really the light of the sun. It reflects the light of the sun. We could point at it and say, I don't even know where it is tonight, you could point at it and say, that's the light of the sun, bouncing off this cold, powerless little blob up in the sky. It's reflecting another's light to us. The sun, that's the atomic powerhouse. That's exploding out energy and light. This thing is just placed in a way where it's reflecting it and bouncing it back to us so that we can see it. What kind of light from Jesus will bounce off you and be reflected to those in your immediate proximity? Hear this. This is Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6 and 7. This is Isaiah talking about the Messiah, not you, not me. He's prophesying hundreds of years before Jesus, and he's saying, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, and he's, he's talking to this future Messiah. I will take you by the hand and I will keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. You will be a light for the nations. You will open eyes that are blind and bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. Isaiah was talking about Jesus. And then when this Jesus shows up, Jesus is talking about you. The most common names in this room are like Grace and Sam and Jack. So that hits a lot of people in the room. Grace, you're the light of the world, Jesus says. Sam, Jack, Ben, Adam, whatever. Jesus, who is the light of the world, looks at you and says, you're the light of the world. You're the light of the world in the same way that the moon reflects the light of another. So what should you expect Jesus the light to do through you as you reflect him to others? Get this, all the stuff that Isaiah said, Jesus now says he was gonna do through you. I hope you're paying attention because this will blow your socks off. Jesus intends to use the body on the seat of your chair to open eyes that are blind. That's something only he can do, but he's gonna do it through you. It's gonna be the 17th porch conversation with a roommate and you've been so patient. You don't know what you've been doing. You're out of your league. I need to go read a book on evangelism. I don't know what I'm doing. I feel like I'm ruining it every time, but you keep trusting Jesus to be Jesus. You actually believe that he loves his enemies and is after them and so, you just gently press one last time. You're like, I don't want to, I don't want to push anything down your throat. I'm just, I'm curious where your thoughts have been lately. And that 17th time, the scales come off and the eyes are open. And Jesus used you 
to open eyes that were blind. Jesus will use us to bring out prisoners from the dungeon. I get that this is creepy language, but the Bible says everybody in this, in this world is living in one of two kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness, of whom the devil is the father and the ruler, or the kingdom of light or the kingdom of God, of whom Jesus is the king and the ruler. The Bible says that's where you are, here in this dungeon of darkness, enslaved and incapable of escaping, or here, liberated by a God who comes in here to raid the dungeon and break men and women out. And Jesus says he will use, if you're not a Christian, your friends to be an instrument in his hand to break you out of that dungeon. Listen to them. And if you're the friend, talk. Share, invite. Pray, strategize. So we're talking about really, 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 really high caliber stuff, right guys and ladies? This isn't like peanuts. We're talking about major, major stuff. And again, Jesus does not have a smirk on his face. He's serious. Do you believe this? Do you expect that he's going to do it? Will everybody respond with joy? Will that roommate on the 17th conversation say, oh, you're so amazing. Thank you so much for the past 16 weeks that we've sat out here talking. Some of your roommates will hate you for it. And when you leave, they'll tell the other roommates, when is he going to get off it? Trying to jam this stuff down my throat. I hope you're not trying to jam stuff down anybody's throat, but, but you, might be, you might be ridiculed and dismissed and insulted that way. That's going to happen. Jesus said it last week. Blessed are those who are persecuted, insulted for my sake. But you should expect a lot of people to respond positively. He says it in this passage. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify the Father so that they might see the light of the moon and trace it back to the sun and say, you're just Ben. There's no light, light coming out of you. Where's this coming from? They finally trace it back to the source. Jesus Christ, the merciful one, the holy one, the powerful one, the restoring one, the renewing one, the pursuing one. Well, this is all very well and good, but Jesus ends with a couple of warnings, right? He doesn't just kind of share with us the reality of your influence in the world or the ingredients of that influence, but there's two warnings kind of thrown in here. I guess you could call them warnings or just cautions, and these are the killers of kingdom influence. Think about it this way. You could say that the two main ingredients of kingdom influence are proximity and distinctiveness. Proximity and distinctiveness. The moon reflects the sun's light to the earth because it's close enough to the sun to catch the light, and it's close enough to us to be seen. Jupiter's got moons. It's got tons of moons. Have you ever seen one? No. It's so far from the sun, it doesn't reflect that, and it's so far from us, you can't see it. It's useless. It's helpless. Nobody says, oh, the moon is full tonight. Now I can find my way back to my car. It's too far away because it's not proximate. It's not near. The loss of proximity, which could happen through Christians retreating from the world to be here all the time, is a killer for kingdom influence. Christians turning the church into just a place to kind of keep your mental health in check and meet people and fill your spiritual tank up is a kingdom influence killer. 
Because it t that attitude, that posture takes you out of proximity. It's like the moons in Jupiter. Technically, you're a moon. Technically, you're reflecting something, but nobody's ever seen you. Nobody's ever been helped by it. That, we're on a different mission when we come into here or go there with that mentality. Um, I, I was talking to my wife yesterday. She had taken Eli and Addie, my, five, my six-year-old and five-year-old, to their first soccer scrimmage ever. It's a little five-year-old league. And I hear over the phone Anna yelling at Eli, stop tackling the girl, stop tackling her. She wasn't talking about a soccer tackle. Eli was running around the field like tackling people. And she said, it's not football, it's soccer. You're not allowed to tackle people. He's like, okay. When we're off mission and on some other mission and we just come into these places and use these places for our own kingdom of self building, it's like Eli and I feel tackling people, and you're like, wrong game. It's not what we're about. It's not what we're doing. There's also great danger and a loss of distinctiveness, and this is where we end. And this is, I guess, obvious. Jesus said if the salt loses its saltiness or if the light is concealed, it's of no use. It's dirt on the ground. It helps nobody. It's lose-lose. You lose, the world loses, your friends lose. But a loss of distinctiveness can happen in a couple of ways by blending in with the world, which is a big temptation for all of us because of social pressure, because of persecution, because of insults, because of cancellation, because of no one texting you to invite you anymore. It's a big temptation. It's hard to kind of blend in and adapt to whatever place you're in and downplay the distinctiveness of who you are as one who knows and reflects Jesus, and you're like, hide this. I don't want to reflect this. There's a lot of churches and denominations that do this, too. I don't have time to get into this, but Harvard, in partnership with Pew, released a study this year that said, you know, there's this conventional wisdom out there that Christianity is in decline in America, and like the church is going the way of the dinosaurs and extinct. And it said, um, while that sells a lot of, uh, while that's clickbait, it's not true statistically. Liberalizing denominations that have denied the deity of Jesus, the authority of the Bible, who have accommodated themselves to be just like the world, they're in free fall and have been for 55 years. None of the mainline denominations have added a single net member in 55 years. But do you know about the churches and denominations that are calling people to Jesus, that are on mission, that believe the Bible and are teaching it, they've grown. They're planting churches. They're planting ministries. They're throwing open doors, not shutting them. And the article ended when I was reading, uh, one of the researchers uh, was saying, if you think Christianity is on decline, watered down Christianity is on decline. It's dying. But salty Christianity, to use our language tonight, distinctive Christianity that believes Jesus is serious about his mission to gather people into his family, that's shooting up like a rocket. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying there's not problems. So friends, what do you do? How does this hit you tonight? I mean, obviously we've talked about what do you do with this, what changes in your life. What if you're not a Christian? I hope you hear and I hope you feel so loved right now to know that the God that you might not understand, you might not know what he's like, you might be suspicious of him, Look at him sending his people towards you in love, saying, help her. He sees you. Help him. Tell him, tell him what he needs to hear. Grab him by the hand. 
be the big brother, be the big sister, help. I hope you feel so loved that he sees you on the outside and is coming to walk back patiently with you. And if you know him, I would just ask, will you take these words seriously tonight? And will you brainstorm with yourself, with God, with your roommates about how we can lean into the influence Jesus says we're going to have? Let's pray. Jesus, you are the salt of the earth. You are the Holy One who is different than us, and it's because of your holiness that we have hope. It's because you didn't accommodate, because you didn't give in, because you never were selfish, that we get to partake in your righteousness. You're the light of the world. You illumined our lives. You showed us the way back to you. Help us, Jesus, to believe that you're serious about this stuff. We pray it in your name. Amen.